Hoo, 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 hoo. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, one and all. <laughs> uh, that's that's the that's what Santa says, right? Who who who? I think he says ho ho ho. Oh, but... that's right, that's right. You know, my family they they never did Santa Claus, so I kind of missed out on a lot of those things. So <laughs> I, I knew it was it was something along those lines, but I always read it as who who who, not ho ho ho. <laughs> so I, I get it, I get it. Okay, all right, well. Uh, as I've, I believe that all the listeners have guessed, we have a uh, wonderful Christmas episode. We will. This will be in three parts. Tonight is the Ghost of Christmas Past, and I have a very exciting interview with a guest who has been very influential on Mason and me. He is definitely a person from Mason's in my past. Okay. Uh, it is Mason Rick Caldwell. Rick Caldwell. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm really excited for Mason to hear this just because uh, we we haven't spoken with Rick in a long time. I, mm-hmm. I kind of like, I mean, we've been Facebook friends for a long time, but you, I think, don't have Facebook anymore. Correct. And I am almost never on Facebook. So mm-hmm. I had to kind of reinvigorate myself on Facebook enough to go to the messaging section and message him and mm-hmm. figure out how to schedule a time. And I'll give you like a like a funny story. You and I talk every week at, mm-hmm. from my perspective, about 7 p.m. Yeah. Maybe a little later sometimes. I told Rick, and I thought I was being really clever. I was like, aha, Rick, let's meet or let's do our recording at 6 p.m. your time. Mm-hmm. And where was I at 6 p.m. your time? Virginia time? I was Nope, I was at work because I was Victoria was out of town and I was like, Well, I can get some extra work done. I I have a whole hour until Rick will be on. (laughs) And so he messages me and he's like, Hey Jake, are you uh are you gonna be on? And I was like, Oh, oh that's right, you're you're not okay, yeah, yeah, I don't have an hour difference I do have an hour difference for you, but I'm an hour uh, behind you I forgot about it Unfortunately, I only live Like six or seven minutes Away from work So mm-hmm. I just came home And we started the show A little Rick bit late is a very amiable guy When he's your friend Like Yeah You know He's he's a nice person To most people But like You know Rick is very amiable And easygoing When you're friends with him Yeah So we spent a good uh, 40 or 50 minutes Just kind of re- Reminiscing about old times So Mason Why don't you give it a Listen And we'll kind of Talk about it Afterwards And get your thoughts yeah. I hope everybody enjoys. Uh, and here it is. All right. Thanks, Rick, for joining me. Uh, Mason is going to be especially happy to hear you because it's been a while since we've all been able to talk. And I'm now in Texas. You're still in uh, in Norfolk or Virginia Beach? Virginia Beach, yeah. Okay. And Mason's up in Norfolk now. Um, mm-hmm. So he's going to be really happy. For everybody who's joining us, Rick is like the godfather of Mason and I getting into i guess the anarchist branch i don't know if you remember this rick but when we first met i was a bob bar libertarian and which makes me laugh now um but mason and i both were kind of weren't even i I wouldn't even say we were minarchists we were pretty much like no you know the state should exist and and these are all the things that they should regulate but we had our own particular pet uh, items that we thought that they should not be involved in, and sure. I think you introduced me one of the I, I guess the one of the books that like really got me going like yeah you know what we don't need government is Mary Ruert's Healing Our World and great book great book and it, and you recommended it to me and I remember uh, I was I was out for a walk and and Mason was over hanging out with Nate or whatever they're grilling out and I was listening to it on audio. And I came through the back gate and I told Mason and Nate, I was like, remember that book that Rick Caldwell told us, told me to read? I've been listening to it and I think I'm an anarchist now, guys. 
<laughs> and uh, and Mason was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But then eventually, like, as I got more into it, started reading, you know, uh, Lysander Spooner and Bastiat and Rothbard and Mises and all them. Like I got, I got more and more and more down this road, but it all started with Rick Caldwell. If you can pound your way through all the older, through the older sort of uh, stylized language of Spooner, yeah, that, Spooner will turn you into an anarchist. Oh yeah, well, especially just vices are not crimes is a really short essay. You can read yeah. that and just kind of his like logical breakdown of of like why it's just wrong to put people in cages kind of makes you start going like you're right. You know what? That this is it's it's not conducive to creating the society that you want to create and. Uh, it's just bad. Like it's mean. It's mean to do that to people. <laughs> One other book that I that I recommend highly, um, and I was recommending it back in those days too, was uh, Mark the Market for Liberty. Oh yeah, I, I don't know if I've read that one. Who who writes that? That one's on that one's on audiobook as well. It's at uh, book free It's on on available on audiobook at book either dot com or dot org. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's actually free keen is where I got my first uh, text copy of Healing Our World because that yeah. was that was available on PDF there. But so it, it the mar- the market for liberty is definitely available on audiobook at that same okay. at, at that same spot. All right. Uh, well, that's a good recommendation. We'll give that to everybody. Um, one thing I guess I wanted to start out, Rick, since this is part of a, a Christmas clip episode. Um, what got you like down the anarchist path? Because as I recall from like for a while, it was just you, me, and Mason for the most part in these young libertarian meetings, and we we would talk all the time. And you used to be in the military, but I think you were pretty. I wouldn't. I don't know if you were like. Um, an anarchist as far as like the philo- philosophical side of it but you were definitely kind of a free spirit and like not necessarily anti-cop but definitely like i remember that story you told me where you were like well you're the public servant why don't you tell us how fast we were going and why, <laughs> you know like that story always cracked me up um so like it seemed to me that you were you had kind of this yeah. anti-authoritarian streak i was also i was also snot slinging drunk at that time uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> actually when i said that when i said that to that to to, to that cop at that that time actually i was pretty much a statist oh really okay <laughs> i was i was a statist leftist oh okay that was just something i said off the top of my head to a cop that was pulling us over uh and I, I wasn't driving. The guy that was driving hadn't had anything to drink. Right. Uh, he got pulled over for speeding, and and, and uh, I woke up in the middle of it. And when I when I heard him asking asking my buddy how, uh, how if he knew how fast he was going, I just I just said, "Well, you're a public servant. Why don't you go top off our tires and you tell us?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah I always I always love hearing that story. So what what ended up getting you kind of involved in the like going from being a status leftist to being like uh, a free market anarchist or uh, there's a little bit of a there's about a 10 year uh, 10 to 12 year uh, road that that you go down to, t- to complete that story um, ended up leaving the uh, leftist side of things because I, I had been a, a leader of a young Democrats group up, up in uh, in Massachusetts uh, while my ship was in in the yards. I was in the Navy at the time. The ship that I was stationed on was in the yards up there. And I, over time, I over the course of about a year, I had become a leader of a uh, young Democrats group up there. Mm-hmm. And the Democrat Party, the Massachusetts Democrat Party, 
had an event where they um, invited me to speak. And although I was a Democrat, very much a Democrat, one thing I did not agree with my party at that time on was public education. Okay. Um, My experience in the public education system had told me that it was not anything at all like what what the uh, what the people in my own party at the time were telling me it was. So when they invited me to speak at their at, at their event, that's the topic I chose to talk to them about. Not all the stuff that I agreed with them on. The one thing that I didn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got shouted down. I'm more I, I, I'm more or less I may as well have been kicked out of the party at that moment. Right. Um, and uh, that that took me down down about a two year path where I left the party and then one issue at a time backed away from the entire left side left side of the spectrum of politics altogether, mm-hmm. even philosophically. By 1994, I was a I was definitely a libertarian by then and had joined. That's the year I joined the Libertarian Party. Okay, probably was in that mindset a couple of years prior to that, but just wasn't calling myself that. Right. <clears throat> um. At that time, I wasn't. I was by no means an anarchist. Right. Uh, that didn't happen until 2006. Okay. That's actually or that's, at least that's, when I, that's when I started calling myself that. Okay, because that's about two, maybe a year, maybe two years before you and I met. Because it was during the 2008 election uh, when Bob Barr was running that you and I met. Yeah. And I think I was, a, I, I was definitely already an, an, an anarchist before yeah. then. I, I was highly opposed to Bob Barr. Oh, yeah. Well, and I remember you were the first person, because when I came in and I was basically just looking for people who wanted to support Bob Barr with me, you were like, the way that he treated, he and Wade Allen Root, the way that they treated Mary Ruart at the convention is uh, pretty atrocious, like all the lies that they were spreading about her and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'd never heard that before. And, I mean, the election was pretty much over, and Bob Barr got like a measly like 0.02% of the vote or something like that. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like worse than Gary Johnson, who, (laughs) you know, didn't really have... Have a great showing either, but um, Gary Johnson had the, Gary Johnson got the highest percentage yeah. and the most votes of any uh, of any libertarian presidential candidate. Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean, and that sort of sort of puts it into perspective how much of a uphill climb uh, it is for libertarians is because he got I think less than five percent uh, mm-hmm. total, and that's the best we've ever done it, it, from the from the party. By the time it was all done, I think it was I think by the time it was all done, it was four point something percent. Yeah, on election night they were reporting three point something, but I. Think I think that I think that total went up at some point okay. uh, before by the time they finished all the counting. Yeah. So um, and so I mean that that's interesting too. Like your kind of path down anarchy sort of mirrors mine a little bit because I remember like I was in high school I was uh, a big part of the young uh, Republicans and I got sort of kicked out because of the war issue where we were we were four years in to well I guess we were. Th- we were four years into Afghanistan and maybe three years into Iraq, and I was kind of already at that point going like, "Eh, this is not what this is not what I thought it was back when it got started. This is this is something different. It's not it's not a moral crusade. It's not all these things." And the young Republicans were like, "Well, we want none of that," and so they kicked me out and of the group. And I was like, "Fine, I'll go start my own group." And I, and that was before I knew there were libertarians. I, I thought that uh, I had to go ahead and start a new a new thing on my own. And through kind of that long process of starting Yak, which at the time was Young American Conservatives, <laughs> I end up finding you guys uh, and was like, okay, well, uh, can I be convinced of these like libertarian principles? And Bob Barr was running, and I and I thought he was more palatable than everybody else who was running, and. Um, especially on the war issue, but then it turned out he was a war hawk also. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and that's around when I started meeting you and then you started me on this path and it was, you know, when we had the young, 
Libertarians going. It was for for a while. It was uh, you know Jessica, Mike Lowry, and all them. And then Jessica had to go do something else, and so she stepped down. And Lowry was in charge. But I remember one day Lowry comes to the meeting and he announces, "I've read Konkin. I've become a agorist, and I'm no longer running these meetings." Jacob, you want to do it? And I was like, "Well, I, I guess so. I enjoy hanging out with Rick and, and Mason and the odd other people that show up." But for a couple of years, I think it was. I was like the the president or whatever. Mason was the treasurer. You were the secretary, and we were the only. I don't thing. even think I was. Was I the secretary? Yeah, I think you were. Because was there, I anything? Yeah, I wasn't a young libertarian. I was there to be a mentor. I was. I was. Well, you did a good job mentoring us, but there was only three of us, so those were the only positions <laughs> to fill. I seem to remember there were only three of us that were consistently there, but there was a whole range of people who were there in and out for one meeting here, one meeting yeah. there. We would see them. We, we would see most of these people like twice a year. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, well, it was. It was. So it was like it was you, me, and Mason and, consistently, and then, and then people. Would remember, rotate. we had that one meeting. Remember, up at the in, in that corner in Ke- at Kelly's. Yeah, uh, they had they had put us they had put us instead of putting us in our usual corner, they put us at a different table because our, our meetings had consistently been so small. For whatever reason, every that one meeting, that one time, yeah, everybody. Who had ever shown up once here, once there? Uh, everybody who had ever shown up like four times, two to four times a year, were there that one night. That's Remember right. That? Yeah, and it was like it was like thirty people, and they put us we, at a table for like five. <laughs> we filled a we filled a quarter of that top level of yeah. Kelly's. Yep. Yeah, that's right. It was just it was so bizarre. <laughs> we weren't expecting it. No. Now, because because usually when I called to make the reservations, I'd be like, well, we'll probably have five, six people, and uh, this one time it was like. 30 something people showed up. There was like 30 of us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was that was a that was a good meeting. Um but uh let's go ahead and like redirect a little bit in this conversation. You mentioned before we got started that you have been brewing. I have also brewed and it is relevant to the show, the alcohol uh aspect of it. Tell me what is your favorite thing to brew? What have you been working on? All that kind of thing. I brew one sour per year. One sour. Um, okay. I- I do uh, I do a variety a variety of different different kinds of beers. I try different things all the time. I'll, I'll do a Marzen uh, uh, a uh, Marzen beer mm-hmm. um, in March. A sour that uh, are you doing natural fermentation with that? Like local fermentation? No, not really. Okay, okay so you get I mean, you have a yeast that you that you get it started. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, because I'm a li- I'm a little afraid too because I live right next to the dump. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, however, a uh, microbrewery just opened up less than three blocks away from me. Oh, really? Okay. They're going to be doing sours. Hmm. Now, I don't know how exactly they're going to be doing it. But the last one I did, the one I did last year was a uh, um, it was a strawberry lambic. Okay. Oh, okay. I see. I see. You're doing like the lambic style sours. Okay. Yes. Okay, yes. That that's, makes that makes that, sense. That's what I. Okay. Yeah, that's what I do. Okay, I love um, lambics. Those are one of my favorites. And that one had a that one has a funny story attached to it a little bit actually because I used strawberries that I had grown um, on, on the front lawn. Oh, cool. Um, I knew I didn't have enough, so I had supplemented supplemented it with some strawberries that I bought at the uh, grocery store or the farmer's market or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lambic takes, uh, I started it out as a, uh, as a uh, Belgian white, a 10 gallon batch of Belgian white. I split it in half, finished half, finished five gallons of it as a Belgian white. And then I turned the other, the other five gallons into the uh, strawberry lambic, soured it, uh, added the yeast, to the, the special yeast to sour it. Uh, the secondary fermentation on a lambic takes nine months. Oh wow! Okay, I'm three months into it, and I open up the uh, the 
the lid to see if to see what's going on in there. And amongst all the gunk, gunk and everything that's accumulating up at the top, as I expect, I see the strawberries, and they're all already blanched white. Ooh. I got six more months to go, and there, and there's clearly no more sugar left in these strawberries for the yeast to eat. Mm. So I needed more strawberries. I went to Farm Fresh, a local grocery store, mm-hmm. for your listeners that aren't from here. They're yeah. closed now, by the way. Yeah, they just I, recently, I saw that. they just just closed earlier this year. Um, they uh, the Farm Fresh that I went to, I wasn't even there for for the strawberries. I wasn't even thinking about it at the moment. Walked in the door, and right in front of the door. There's this uh, a barrel full of strawberries that, for whatever reason, that they had some that, that were on the verge of going bad. Mm. Actually, pretty much had gone bad. They, I wouldn't have bought them to eat them, okay. even if I was going to eat them right away. Um, just that, that was uh, the most blind-ass luck thing that, I, that, that, I've ever, that maybe I've ever had, run across in my life. They just happened to have exactly what I needed right there, right there in the store, and, and I wasn't even looking for them. Wow, that's wow. great. So I got to finish the uh, I got to finish the brew with those. Got to finish the secondary fermentation with those. Mm-hmm. Got a little more strawberry flavor into them. So how'd that lambic turn out? Fantastic. Oh, good. Yeah, that 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 turned out great. Cool. cool. Uh, now you you said that you did a sour. A sour takes almost a year, so you've been doing one sour a year. Are you doing yeah. any other brews between that that are a little bit faster? Yeah. Oh, you are okay. All right. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. I'll do a I'll, I'll do a Mars and beer. Oh, that's right. You said which that, yeah. that also takes about six months. You okay. start it in March. You start it in March, and you traditionally you start. That's the one that, that is traditionally referred to as an Oktoberfest beer. Yeah, yeah. That's the one that they in Germany they would they would store in a cave for six months from between March and 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 they call it Oktoberfest, but Oktoberfest actually traditionally starts in at the end of September. Okay, and. That was that was when they uh, Oktoberfest was the celebration of when they pulled the beer out of these caves, okay. where the, where it was where where it was fermenting, um, and it was it would start with the with parades mm-hmm. of uh, these uh, horse-drawn carriages that that were that were pulling along these giant gigantic barrels out of the ca- out of the caves and into the city. Um, that's the beer that they that that, that they did. It's Mars and beer. Okay, that's pretty cool. I bet you that Mason would really like that. He's a big fan of the German styles, have have mm-hmm. bison and that in that type of thing. And that's the that is the prototypical okay. German style yeah, of beer. Yeah. He he likes um, that a lot. That's the that's the most iconic of them all of them all. Right. Now you also mentioned that you have a friend who is uh involved in the um I guess fight against the state regulated ABC stores. Mm-hmm. Um do you have any? I, I don't. I mean, I don't expect you to give me a huge amount of details on that because I kind of am dropping the topic on you. But uh, just to, for the listeners who don't know, in Virginia, where I used to live and where Rick lives, uh, all liquor over a certain percentage of alcohol has to be sold in these state-owned and state-run stores. And I'll give you like a quick contrast on that. Here in Texas, you can buy liquor pretty much anywhere, and the the service level at most liquor stores I've been to is really good. And then and there's a high knowledgeability uh, in the staff of being able to tell you about the liquors, about the wines, about the beers, that kind of thing. In Virginia, there's a lot of places you can get beer where people are very knowledgeable and a lot of places you can get wine where people are very knowledgeable. But the ABC store is staffed by like the dumbest bunch of people, it seems like. The government bureaucrats. Yeah, they are. And they don't they don't care what you buy. They don't care about customer service. They don't care about any of that sort of stuff. They're just there to clock their hours. Once in a while, you'll have like a representative from one of the alcohol companies who's there and can tell you about their particular alcohol. But it's it's just not a great thing. Do you have anything you want to add about that? Because you've got a friend who's kind of involved in trying to eliminate that regulation. Yeah, it's actually one of his big issues. Um, he actually comes from a very influential family in the city of Chesapeake. Mm-hmm. Um 
which I'm in Virginia Beach. My my house is in Virginia Beach, but I'm in I'm within spitting different distance down two different roads of the city of the the Chesapeake border. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's um, he's interested in a lot of different in, in a lot of different issues, mostly related, uh, especially related to business and real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, but another one of his big issues is uh, yeah, he's heavily involved in the uh, in, in the to, to in the fight to deregulate uh, ABC regulations. Okay. Um, and for your listeners, the a- ABC is the Alcohol Control Board uh, in-, in the state of Virginia. They're the ones who own and operate those stores, those liquor stores that Jacob was talking about. And uh, the uh, there have been some strides made. Um, the microbreweries are are a thing in in Virginia because of a, a deregulation effort that took place. About eight years ago, maybe. Yeah, I, I sort of remember us talking about that at the meetings back then. That there, that there was some hope that it would deregulate. Yeah, it took a while after that, though. Yeah. Okay. But it did. It did eventually happen. Okay. It did eventually happen, and and, and microbreweries have been popping up all over the damn place. Oh yeah. I mean, there's like there's like six of them. There's a neighborhood in in, in Norfolk called Ghent. Yeah, that's where I was. Um, that's where I was living right before we moved to Texas. There's like six of them there. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's like, like six c- microbreweries yeah, uh, there now. Coelacanth is there. Rip Rap is there. O'Connor's, uh, Smart Mouth. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's two or three other ones right in that area that are. These just... are all within walking distance, folks. Yeah, they're great. So you remember Nate Tupitza? Mm-hmm. So he so he moved back to Illinois, but he came to visit me when I was in Norfolk, and we did a beer crawl to probably four of the five, but I think by the time or four of the six. Maybe there's five. I don't remember. But by the time we got to like the fourth one and we were going to go to the next one, we were like, we've had too much to drink. <clears throat> and so we walked over to Kogan's where we had more to drink and pizza. So, <laughs> uh, and also, you know, let's go ahead and switch gears one more time, Rick. Um, you and you and Mike Lowry used to do a podcast. So you are actually also very influential with me in the podcasting space because I think until you and Lowry started doing it, I hadn't mm-hmm. heard of podcasts. Or, or if I had heard of them, I didn't listen to any. I only listened to yours, which was IFAQ, Infrequently mm-hmm. Asked Questions. Right. Um, which was I was actually a guest on two or three times. Uh, have you heard anything from Lowry or have you guys ever talked about getting that show going again? Or do you have any interest in getting that show going again? I am completely out of contact with him. Yeah, I haven't talked to him in a long time either. He um, moved to Northern Virginia uh, for a while. Apparently, according Jessica has seen him recently. Oh, okay. Jessica Abbott. By the way, she's on city council now. I, I saw that. Yeah, congratulations to Jessica. That was, I'm sure, not easy. Youngest person to ever be uh, elected to city council. Wow. It, Sidetrack for a moment, yeah. Because this is this is pretty this is pretty big. Okay. Uh, she uh, she's the youngest person to ever be elected to Virginia Beach City Council. She was 26 years old at the time. Wow. She um, no uh, no challenger has ever beaten an incumbent in the city of Virginia Beach by more than four percent. She won 60 percent of the vote. She wow. didn't just break that record. She to- yeah, she totally it. smashed it beyond any realistic expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, there were four other candidates that were running on uh, a a uh, the big issue at the time was light rail. Right. There were four right. other four other candidates that were running on on the. Uh, anti-light rail side she's the only one that won wow the the measure was defeated yeah i specifically went to vote and i don't normally vote i specifically went to vote specifically on that issue for no light rail and the the uh the the measure the measure was defeated by by a 60 to 40 percent margin same as same as what jessica won by mm-hmm. but the other four candidates 
did not even come close to winning their their, their races, their respective races. Yeah. Um, a big part of that had to do with uh, the fact that um, she did all she did the things that all the other candidates did in terms of she went to all the the relevant uh, homeowners association meetings and and all those kinds of things to discuss uh, her platform and her ideas. Uh, but she went several steps further. She not only was opposed to light rail, she actually was the only one who had a plan for something else to for for something different to do with the uh um the track with the with the rail bed was that, that the city had had already bought okay. from from Norfolk Southern and that was like that trail the park with the trail that was yeah that, yeah because I remember rails I remember trails. I remember Matt yeah, rails to trails she she had a she had a plan to turn it into a system of uh, of a connected an interconnected system of parks in, uh, connected by way of a bike bicycle trail and a walking trail right okay and uh, the, the the this alone would have would have cost something along the order of one sixty fourth of the cost of uh, of building the light rail mm-hmm. right from the very beginning but not only that she also um, knew of an organization called Rails to Trails, uh, a charitable organization that gets involved with cities that are doing these things, exactly this thing. Yeah. And they cover up to 80% of the cost. Wow. So had the city not, I had no reason to believe that the city would have uh, chosen to uh, to divest themselves of the, uh, the rail bit that they had already bought. Uh, or to return the money that the state the state gave the city half of that money that they used to buy it. Yeah, I had no reason to believe that they, that they were going to undo their plans um, or or divest themselves of that property. I, I believe that they would follow the the uh, the will of the uh, of the uh, the the vote on right. the measure. Right. If it was struck down, and it was. <laughs> But I didn't believe that they were going to uh, give the money back to the state or any of that. I figured they were going to do something with that property. And if they were going to do something with that property, Jessica's idea was better than anything that those other turkeys on, on city council were going to come up with. Right. Um, you know, certainly it's not a pure anarchist uh, thought to have the city do something with it. But my thought was that the city was going to do something with it. Right. Might as well right. be that. Mm-hmm something that that was going to cost less than anything else Mm -hmm. and result in something that would result in basically a boardwalk going through the middle of the city from end to end right all the way down to the ocean front uh from the border of the city all the way all the way down to the ocean front uh and and the the rail bed basically bisects the city almost exactly in half Mm -hmm. um to my surprise they did end up divesting themselves of uh, of the property okay they gave that they gave them the state's money back they returned the state's money back to them uh i don't know what is eventually going to happen with that rail bed but it's not going to be anything that the city does with it that's that's uh, at least that's kind of a bright side of it Just to give also the listeners a little background on that one in particular is that the light rail in Norfolk is actually the second largest revenue loser of uh, light rail systems in the country. Yeah. And I mean, it's a joke. San Diego is the biggest, isn't it? Uh, I think it's actually. Am I right on that? Well, I think San Diego is now the biggest. But uh, when we were when we were all talking about the light rail and going to have the vote on it, it was actually the Sacramento Green Line. And the Sacramento Green Line, they've since shut down because it was okay. it was losing so much money for the, the city. And we thought that Virginia or Norfolk would be the biggest loser. But then San Diego came through and lost even more. So <laughs> so uh, so we're in it's the race to the bottom for light rail. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, actually, Cato. 
Cato has a really good. Maybe I'll I'll put this in the show notes on this. Cato actually has a really good study from. 2011 on light rail systems and uh, heavy rail systems worldwide for people moving. And outside of uh, Southeast Asia, every rail system loses money. And it's just because that in places, even in Europe, where it's a lot more dense than the United States, they just don't move enough people. And also, you know, anytime the state gets involved in anything, they they don't run it very well. And there's an enormous bureaucracy that costs a ton of money. Uh, There might be a a private system that could do better, but... You know, there's a lot of new projects that are like private busing using like the Watson AI to figure out where the buses need to go and and how to change the busing and make it a little more dynamic. But for some reason, the United States and and Europe just love rail systems. They've got aren't most of those aren't most of those private systems like maglev rather than uh, um, rather than rail. Most of which aren't they maglev rather than than uh, rather than light rail? What is the the private systems that you're talking about? Oh, no, the, the, pri- the private systems that they're working on are not maglev. They're they're busing systems. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so they're they're working on like there's been a couple of cities and I don't recall off the top of my head what they are that have allowed private companies to come in and run bus lines. And they the way that they do it is they, they purchase a small section of the road where the bus stop is gonna be so the bus can pull off and not stop traffic mm-hmm. and load people and unload people. And they also use cameras to assess how many people at various times are at different bus stops so that they can send the appropriate the appropriate size bus to those locations and it's a very flexible system i think they're they're not doing it in dc but it's somewhere up in northern northern virginia or maryland that they they've started doing it on a very small scale and they're apparently like incredibly efficient very profitable um but it's all you know it's it's private industry versus the the incentive structure for government industry is not exactly on its head but it's it's not it doesn't have an incentive to be efficient it has an incentive to make work for people who work for the government and Mm. it's just a just a completely different system um well we're running low on this segment's time rick but i wanted to get a couple more things from you are you still in a band and are you still playing music locally not currently not currently um if i do start another the the band that i was in was a four piece and there were Mm -hmm. at at times it was a five piece when we added a second guitarist or when we added a, a second harmonica player in addition to me that was um, that was Soulshine. It was Soulshine. Yeah, that was good. I like um, Soulshine. Yeah, uh, we're not we're not together currently. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do do another band, it's not going to be a small one like that. It's going to be uh, I'm uh, I would like to do a much larger one. Uh, but a lot of the musicians locally that that I'd like to work with are a little reluctant to do that because it's a little bit harder to book something like that to book a larger band like that. You can't yeah. just book them at a book a band that a ten piece band at any at any you know hole in the wall right, bar. Right, that makes sense. So we would, if we would have to do uh, fewer shows for a higher price, right? Okay. Uh, at, large, at larger venues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of the lo- a lot of the musicians that I want to work with are a little res. They they like the idea art- artistically, okay. but they don't. They they're not. Uh, they're they're reluctant to get involved in something that's that difficult to book. Okay, that that so. makes sense. It, it's that's kind of a, a tough thing to book. So I've got two more things for you, Rick, before we close out this interview. The the first thing is, what alcoholic beverage would you recommend to the listeners that is widely available um, for the this season, the winter season, the Christmas, New Year's, that that season? Um, widely available. I mean, a, as widely available as you could think, because if you say, "Well, my sour," then nobody will be able to drink that. But. <laughs> yeah, no, right? No. 
uh, Sam Adams usually comes out with a with a good uh, winter selection. That's right. And actually, at those libertarian meetings, we used to drink a lot of that, the Sam Adams winter lager, whenever it was available, above mm-hmm. our, our normal blue moon. Um that we would we would usually get that. Actually, and... when we when we started that call, Sam Adams Winter Lager is what I was drinking. Oh, nice! All right. <laughs> and, and so you recommend this year's Sam Adams Winter Lager because I know they change it a little bit every year. They do change it a little bit every year. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It was. It, it's delicious. Good. It. it uh. It has a. It, it's. It's a Bach, so it's a little bit more on the malty side. Okay. And uh, they brew it with orange peel, cinnamon, and ginger. Ooh. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, so you, so you can expect some very definite spicy notes to it. All right, well then you guys, you heard it here first from Rick the Original Anarchist. Get the Sam Adams Winter Lager, and uh, if you want, you can let us know at Tasting Anarchy how you liked it. The last question for you, Rick. What, since you and I and Mason all go back to the good old days of the Young Libertarians, what is one of your favorite me- memories from those meetings? I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> um... There are there are two that stand out to me. Okay. Um, one is just the the fact that we converted it from a young libertarians meeting with the with the uh, with with the highly structured format where mm-hmm. we would have a speaker and it was it was more or less a typical libertarian meeting. Yeah. And more of a social meeting. Yeah. Um, that that ended up that ended up becoming because we had that format was so attractive that we ended up attracting more than just young libertarians. We ended up attracting a lot of older libertarians. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people with with gray in their hair and their beards, like I have now. Uh, didn't have so much then. Didn't have yeah. so much gray in my beard then. <laughs> no, not when we first met. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they, uh, you know, it, it, it was such an attractive format that it became more than just a young libertarians meeting. It, it ended up morphing into a social meeting called Liberty on the Rocks. Yep. Which, by the Which, way, Rick, uh, that's been stolen until just very recently. We kind of stopped doing it last year because it just got a little bit too got a little bit too overwhelmed by attendance of of. of socially conservative people who wanted to think of themselves as libertarian but they definitely weren't okay and a lot of them for a while were very open to the libertarian ideas but then you know when it came when it came down to the to the presidential election and and trump came around they just turned themselves full trump dogs sorry about that do you remember let, let, let me break on that because this this is actually um something that comes up a lot in like my libertarian circles is during the 2012 Ron Paul campaign, if you would go onto YouTube or if you would go onto the different chat boards and stuff like that, I don't remember Twitter being as popular as it is now, but like Facebook and all that sort of stuff, and you looked at the political comments, it was all in the Fed, Ron Paul, like like everything – everything that you would want. And it seems like a lot of that energy, I I don't know if it was because those people who were supporting Ron Paul were supporting him because he was anti-establishment or if they were supporting him because they actually believed in the message of liberty that he was bringing. They were, they were supporting him because he was anti-establishment. Yeah. Cause a lot of those guys I saw open the door for that did open the door for some of those people to, to shift their thinking over to, to more of the libertarian side. Right. Well, and I, I remember that because when when I I remember there were certain people who will remain nameless on this um, show who I ha- had 
long conversations with them and they agreed to go do or they agreed that if I would go do canvassing for them for Ron Paul which I did mm-hmm. support Ron Paul they would come and do canvassing for Gary Johnson in 2012 because I was you know hardcore libertarian and I was like look if Ron Paul's not going to win we need to get our, our weight behind Gary Johnson and this was in 2012 and I remember the day after Ron Paul conceded uh, I messaged one of these people and I was like alright guys I've got the Gary Johnson posters and the signs let's get out let's hand these out let's go set them up and they were like uh, no we're, crickets yeah well it wasn't crickets it was no we want you to come work on the Mitt Romney campaign <laughs> And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, there's, there is no way that I would go from Ron Paul to Mitt Romney. Right. And, and I, I was so angry about it, but which was kind of, I think I was still in the meetings for another couple of years, but that was sort of like, I wouldn't say the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was just kind of like I started becoming really disillusioned with the local libertarians, the, at least the ones that were involved in the in the activism politically. Mm-hmm. I, I was just very disappointed that that they would go that they would go over to Mitt Romney of all people. And then I've you know I don't I'm not on Facebook as much as I used to be, but like I do sometimes follow these people too, and a lot of them went over into Trump territory, uh-huh. which is. Which very it, it it's very demonstrative that um, there was not an ideological uh, foundation for them supporting Ron Paul. It was it was something else. It was either the anti-establishment portion, which going to Romney you can't be anti-establishment, or it was um, it was more just the excitement that was with the Ron Paul campaign and the, the friendliness between the two sides of the Ron Paul movement here in Virginia. Yeah, really really fell apart in 2013 not 2016 okay uh, due to the governor's race when um um is that the one that when red, it was was red path running on that or was that no no, no not red path that oh. that was uh that was rob uh um oh good grief why is his name just just escaping me um but it, it was uh dead air is fine rick because i can always cut out the silence <laughs> yeah it, it, hang on I'm, i've got okay. i gotta i gotta find I, I, it's unbelievable that i can't remember that, that, I'm, that i'm spacing on his name rob sarvis oh okay i remember yeah uh when he ran as when he ran as a libertarian and all the uh um all the uh conservatarians as they called themselves um wanted us all the, to to get behind ken what's his name the republican i i do remember that um Actually, didn't he come to one of our meetings one time to speak? He came to several of our meetings. Actually, yeah. he he was quite involved with us uh, during a there was a uh, um, there was a movement that was led that was basically led by libertarians that had to do with uh, um, with uh, eminent domain. Okay, and he was uh, heavily involved in the fight against uh, eminent domain abuse. You know, uh, as bad as he was on some of the other issues, he was good on that. Mm-hmm. And he partnered with us quite a bit on that. Um, and so, yeah, he, he worked with us quite a bit. Uh, not at the, he, not so much at the Young Libertarian meetings, right, but, but a, the, a, a the, whole series of other yeah. Libertarian events. He, w- he was there with us quite a bit. Okay, I kind of remember him. Hampton Roads was kind of at the center of that because there was a radio, uh, um, there was a radio organization that was being that was one of the fo- that was the focus of one of the that was one of the heavy targets of, of eminent domain abuse. They ended up not being seized, and then there was also a a uh, um, 
a transmission place that was over there that was going to get eminent domain too. They were pretty big in that. Oh, did. Oh, did it they? Did. Oh, did yeah. get? Oh, okay. Well, no, the transmission place didn't get eminent domain. The feed the seed place. The then. garden, the the uh, the nursery next door to it did, and the transmission place ended up ta- ended up taking over that space. Oh, okay. So the transmission place ended up taking ended up being the beneficiary of the uh, oh, of the uh, eminent domain. Because okay, I used you know. But the other half, but the other half of that space became has become a homeless shelter it's on which road in virginia yeah yeah that's weird because you know that that uh garden center i bought a lot of equipment from them for when i was raising fish in my garage uh, because i did the aquaponics for a while and i used to get a lot of supplies from them that was a that was a good place to get that kind of thing yeah if he didn't have it he would order it for you exactly for a long time yeah he was there before the city before the city of virginia beach when the city of virginia beach was was princess Anne county oh wow okay he was there yeah so uh yeah he was there he was there for a real long time so that it is was a so, bad day when he was eminent domain. Yeah, that's a, I mean that's a huge bummer because I do I remember that place. I got a lot of supplies from there. So that was really that that election was kind of what ended up breaking up the Ron Paul coalition in Virginia. Yeah, okay. I mean it it kind of yeah, that was when the friendliness between between the two sides kind of ended. Okay, and uh, because they were really upset with with libertarians for not supporting Ken Cuccinelli. Okay. Uh, there were good reasons for libertarians not to support right. Ken Cuccinelli. Yeah, I remember because he was yeah. good on just because he was good on one issue didn't make him good as a gubernatorial candidate. Right. Um, especially when there was a libertarian party candidate uh, on the ballot who, because because the two incumbent party candidates were so unpopular, there was a much better chance of uh, of him receiving that ten the ten percent of the vote that mm-hmm. would have made the libertarian party a, 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 a would have given the libertarian party the major party status in the state yeah and then permanent ballot access and ballot access yep yeah because that's a big and, that's a big trouble for for those of the listeners who aren't as involved in the political side like ballot access for libertarians is what we spend the majority of our party money on it's just getting mm-hmm. ballot access it's tough sure is yeah. and uh yeah there was a better chance of him getting that uh, of, of getting that uh that 10 percent than there had been any candidate before really since for governor mm-hmm. Um, so, and because, and not only because he was not, not because he was so much so popular cause he was kind of a dull guy, yeah. but, uh, really smart guy. Yeah. Smarter than the other two. Right. Well, I remember him coming and speaking to us one time at the, at the, well, it was, I, I don't know if it was Liberty on the Rocks yet, but it was definitely already the social gathering instead of a like procedural meeting. That one was Liberty on the Rocks. Okay. That was okay. Yeah. So yeah. that, I mean, that's what it had of, already moved. It had already moved over to, uh, to the pizza place. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So that, I mean, that was toward the end. I think, I think I still went when it was at the pizza place for about a year, maybe two years. And then I had other things going on. And so I ended up not being able to go as often. Um, but I, I kind of liked that too. And I think that was really a decision largely made by you, me and Mason and maybe a couple of other people where we were just like, it doesn't make any sense to have dues anymore. It doesn't really make any sense for us to try to even have any sort of meeting or do a 50, 50 raffle or anything like that, just because it's so inconsistent with who shows up. Most yeah. of the time when, when we would try to do any sort of activism thing, it would be like two or three people showing up to do the activism thing. And it was always the same people, which burns them out and makes them kind of sour. So, and I, I mean, I know I was kind of sour for a while when particularly when we, the, needed, we needed to have, we needed to have an event locally where, where people could take a break yeah. from where, where we could get together as friends, but take a break from the, from the political stuff. Yeah. And, and like, and do things like what you 
were always doing, which was introducing us to books, books and like literature and, and things like that that we maybe wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. Like I don't I don't know that I would have found Mary Ruert on my own, and without finding Mary Ruert, I don't know that I would have found like Rothbard. I like it, there's a whole another branch of libertarianism that for all the listeners, you guys will know what what we're talking about because you're the, the Rothbardian style anarchist like me, myself. But for a lot of other people. The, the mainstream kind of uh, Beltway libertarianism, like the ex- the exposure that they'll have is maybe recent magazine if they're lucky, but it's largely going to be Cato. And Cato does mm-hmm. not does not play, pay even lip service to Rothbard. So or or any of these uh, any of these kind of more hardcore ANCAPs. Love Reason magazine too. Yeah, by the way. yeah. The reason reason is, and they've actually been doing really well lately too. There was a, for a while I was starting to get irritated with them, but then they I think they've there's been like some healing between the two. The two world, worlds, like the Mises Caucus world and the Beltway world. So, and I, I like that. Um, you said you had one more memory that is also your favorite besides the turning it into a social meeting. Yeah, what was that? What was that guy's name? He who kept running for different offices. The the, the black guy who came oh, to the. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I remember him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't remember his name. But yeah, go ahead and tell the story because I, I won't remember his name. If I do remember it, I'll put it in here. And it's impo- it, it, it's uh, it's a sign of the times that I that I've backed away from the political uh, side of things for over the last year that I've forgotten his name because the guy habitually introduced himself to everybody, no matter how many times he's introduced himself. Yeah. Uh, he would come up and shake your hand and tell you his name, no oh, matter yeah. how many times he's told you his name. Uh, he was like a whirlwind too. He would he and he would come and shake every single person's hand very yeah. very quickly. Like he would just come speeding yeah. through. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he came to the he, he came to the meeting and uh, that was when we were still structured and we had guests that that would do us that would do a speech and that was what he was there for. You still yeah. there. Yes, I am. That was just okay. – I, I had a notification. Okay. I didn't know if that was a hang-up or, or, or what. No. Anyway, he uh, – um, there had been a, a – and Mike Lowry was still running it at that time. And That's he, right. And he, he gave us a, a – he gave us a he, we gave him a questionnaire and um, he answered questions on all the on all these questionnaires and one of the answers that he that he gave was uh, I don't even remember what the question was but the answer that he gave was because I believe in the system yeah that's right and then, yeah. and then he went on to some other words after that but that was the that was the thing out of all the answers that he gave and out of the whole that even among that answer that one sentence, Right, just stood out to me. So I, um, when when it came to the Q and A period, um, I asked him, you know, on this one question, one of the sentences in, in the in in the answer to that question was, I because I believe in the system. What makes you believe in the system? Right. <laughs> I remember this the way, story. <laughs> and the way he answered this story. The way he answered this question, he told a story. Said, when I was young, when I was a child, I had a neighbor who every day. When he went to work every morning, he would leave in a suit and he would come back in a suit and tie. And I thought, this guy must be a lawyer or a doctor or something, which yeah. would have been very unusual in the neighborhood that I lived in because we were pretty poor. But then I came to find out that he was a janitor and he would leave every day in his suit and his tie and 
he would go to work and change into his, into his uh, overalls and his janitor's outfit, do his work, and he would, before he came home, he would change back into his suit and tie. And it ended there. Yeah, I remember this. <laughs> and all of us were sitting around the table, silent, for like 30 seconds, it seemed like, waiting for this story to continue to get to the point where it would answer this question that, that yeah, I asked. Right, right. <laughs> I, I want to say his name was like Chuck something. It was Chuck, yes, it was Chuck something. Yeah, I, I can't remember it, but that I remember that. I forgot about that story. That, it was so bizarre because it had nothing to do with the question. It was just like... Nothing. Yeah, it was just a story. And then he ended, and he had this like smug look on his face. like He's like, I've answered this question successfully, kind of. Well, <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah, and, <laughs> he really did. Yeah, and you were like, what? <laughs> and, and I remember like everybody was like, okay, after that, like, you know, he finished the, the speech and he's like, okay, I've got to go. And so he, he ends up leaving. And as soon as he leaves, everybody's like, what? What was what was that? I don't understand. <laughs> we were so confused. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, for, for I, I mean, years afterwards, we would bring this story up all the time because it was such a bizarre, it was just such a bizarre event. And he kept running for more and more offices. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Mm. Yeah. He, I, th- I mean, he, I think re- like as recent as like 2013, 2014, he was running for something in the city. Well, here's what, oh, well, oh, here's how bad it got. This guy, um, on two different occasions, was um, w- was brought up by the Libertarian Party. I mean, not the Libertarian Party, the Republican Party, in races where n- nobody was expected to run, for where the where the where the Republicans weren't expected to run anybody. Yeah, and then they brought him in at the last minute when a when a Libertarian entered. Oh, weird. Um, so. My ex-wife lived in a district where this where, where this guy, this accountant, was running. Remember, he came to our to our meetings a couple times. Uh, Max Shapiro was his campaign manager. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Max Shapiro, the uh, defender of Che Guevara. I I, I I don't I don't know about that. It, this is I, I'll tell this story real quick. This stuck in my craw so much because Max Shapiro came and he was actually very libertarian on a lot of things. Pretty, pretty mainstream libertarian. And for some reason, through the, the course of the conversation, Che Guevara came up and he was like, well, he was a doctor and he saved a lot of people's lives. And like, you know, he wasn't really that bad of a guy. And I'm in my mind going like, well, you've come to a libertarian meeting and this is what you're going to say? How dare you? And like, I was a lot more adversarial back then. Like now I think I would have been able to have a much more tactful approach. But, oh, I was so offended. Funny, I'm, it's funny. I'm a lot more adversarial now. Oh, wow. than I was then. Yeah. Oh yes, very much so. <laughs> but he uh yeah, he he ran in a district where uh he was running against a uh a, a black democrat who was running in one of those district the districts that have been gerrymandered uh to be a majority black district. This was some this is something by the way that it, it's not democrats that, that that build these districts. It's republicans that build these districts yeah. to get the black yeah. people out of other districts so that they can get so that they so that they can get more Republicans uh, elected. Uh, Bill Wardrop came to a Libertarian Party meeting and, and and talked about that one time. He he admitted that he 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 said I'm the one that created that district, and everybody was stunned silent. Like you would say that at a Libertarian Party meeting, right? <laughs> But uh, he uh, the, the, uh, he was running. Um, the, the, this white accountant was running in this district that he and nobody expected him to do more than more than maybe three or four percent. Right. And uh, my ex-wife lived in that district, and he and that was how I met him. I, I was when I went there to pick up my kids. 
um, he was he, he was there knocking on the door to get sign to get ballot signatures. And uh, I brought him to a couple of to a couple of meetings, and we wound up getting and I brought him to some local libertarian party meetings as well. Wound up getting a bunch of libertarian support for this guy. Uh, he wasn't running on the libertarian party ticket. He was trying to get the Republican nomination. Okay. The Republican party told him, we're not going to run anybody in this district because it, because it's unwinnable for us. Yeah. And sure enough, no, he, he, they, he did not win the vote to run, uh, on the liber on the Republican ticket. Um, like the, they voted somehow to not run anybody. Yeah, they didn't. Vote, they didn't vote for him. There wasn't anybody running against him. They just voted to run, not run anybody for that district. Mm -hmm. So he ran as an independent. A lot of libertarian support after after Max Max and I started taking him to libertarian meetings of various types. Um, his support kept creeping up and up and up and over four, over that four percent. Uh, his, his polling started creeping up over that four or five percent threshold that they expected. He started getting closer to, closer and closer to eight and nine percent. Much less than they expected. Well, the Republicans didn't want that to show up after they after what they told him. So who do they bring up? It, Chuck. Yep, Chuck. Yeah, they Chuck Smith. There. That was his name. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Chuck Smith. Yeah, yeah. So Chuck Smith, all of a sudden, after the deadline, his name appears on the ballot. Totally illegal. I don't know how they swung that. Right. But they got him on the ballot. Then another time, uh, one of our friends over on the peninsula was running was running for Congress, and I believe it was the third district. Okay. Uh, was it? It was that, that kind of shorter guy with a buzz haircut. Yes, and he James. Had like the, yeah, long, long, blonde-haired wife. Yeah, he was in. Yeah, yeah. He, he was in the. Uh, he was an officer in the military in right. the navy. That's right. I remember him. Yeah. Um, he was running for Congress and, uh, is either the third or first district. And I believe it was the third. Okay. I think he's in a, I think where he lives, it was the third district at the time, but since it's been redistricted, now it's the first. Right. If, I, if I'm thinking correctly, uh, actually they don't live there anymore. I think they live in Italy or someplace. Okay. Uh, now, um, but he was running for Congress and, uh, they, they weren't going to run anybody in that district because that district was completely dominated by Bobby Scott. Right. Again, another black Democrat district. So the Republican Party wasn't going to run anybody. Libertarians ran James. Um, out of nowhere, just before the deadline. Yeah, Chuck shows up. Yeah. Chuck Smith. Yeah, yeah. Then the Virginia Beach, uh, and, and Chuck didn't even live in that district. In, there's a quirk in, in Virginia politics. In to, to run for Congress in, in Virginia, you have to, you don't have to live in the district that you're running in. Right. Um, but, uh, of course the, only the people who live there can vote in that district. Right. Right. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's an interesting quirk in, in Virginia politics. Chuck didn't even live in that district and they, and they threw him up there, uh, to run basically to thwart any support that, that, that James might get. Right. Just as they had done with the, with, with the other guy. Well, that seems to be the kind of common tactic with either the Republicans or the Democrats, whoever is on the outs in in the districts is they will try to just put somebody up just to kind of stop any sort of third party action mm -hmm. um, and this happens actually with, this happens with the green party too up north a lot is the green party will try to run somebody in a republican district and lo and behold a democrat who hasn't run there in five or six years or five and six terms shows up and is like oh, we can't have greens running and right. uh and kind of breaks that uh well rick i've got to i've got to head out and i really appreciate you taking the time to sit with me i'm going to be back in norfolk virginia beach area in a couple of months 
I think that you, me, and Mason need to get together, have a couple of beers and reminisce about the old times, and maybe we can record another episode while we're out there. I agree. Yeah, it would be, it'd be awesome. Absolutely. It was really good talking to you. And, you know, we Mason and I talk about it all the time, how influential you've been to us. And uh, I got to I gotta maybe, next time Mason and I bring it up, write down some of the stories that we want you to tell because you've had quite a few victories against the city of Virginia Beach. And um, you always have a very animated way of telling them, like a really good story. Like I remember there was one, there was like a windshield wiper uh one where like you had like a I can't remember what it was exactly you had a van and the windshield wiper was broken or something like that and they tried to give you a ticket for that and you no it wasn't broken somebody had so when I left the bar somebody had I hadn't had anything to drink I was with the band okay but somebody had put their uh, their bar tab underneath my windshield wiper oh that's right and I yeah. didn't I didn't I didn't realize it until I got halfway across the parking lot a uh, really big parking lot because it because it, it's behind a Kmart I had to cut through a Kmart parking lot to get to the interstate yeah uh, I got halfway through the through the parking lot and and the and it started sprinkling uh anybody who drives can tell you that sometimes a sp- sprinkling can make the conditions on the windshield worse than than a heavy rain can yeah and that's what was happening so i turned i didn't realize that this bar tab was on was underneath my windshield wipers until i started the windshield wipers up because of this sprinkle because of these sprinkles hitting my windshield mm-hmm. and it left the bar tab right there that paper bar tab right there in the middle of my vision and i stopped to reach around to grab it and the cop Pulled me over on suspicion of DUI. Tried to follow me onto the interstate and, and, and tried to give me a DUI. Yeah, so there's there, there's more to that story, yeah. but yeah, we'll, I'll okay, we'll, we'll have that time. next Ooh. time. Well, thanks again, Rick. I will talk to you later, and I appreciate you being on. All right. Well, thank you, and it's a hell of an honor that you guys are tell, saying that uh, that we've been that I've been influential on you. Yeah, definitely, one hundred percent. All right, and that was Rick Mason. How how do you enjoy hearing him after the oh, man, after a couple the, years? The, those stories in Rick's voice take me back to just those early days of us being, you know, like when when I started going to the the, liber, the young libertarian meetings. Like I just decided that like I I knew John McCain was bad, mm-hmm. and something about Barack Obama just didn't sit right with me. So I was like, I'm going to be a libertarian. And, like, I had this friend who had, like, since sixth grade or seventh grade had, like, a libertarian, like, Facebook tag, or not Facebook tag, but, like, AOL Instant Messenger tag or something like that. And so I was like, I know about that. They're, like, into free markets. I'll be with them. They're into drugs, as as that story says. Um, So, you know, I, I jumped onto that and, yeah, like, started going to those meetings, and it wasn't until, like, really started listening to rick kind of going like wait a minute yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. i may have gotten in over my head here <laughs> well and i and you and i have talked about this before a bunch is that like i need a much more i guess intellectual philosophical basis for why i believe whatever it is i believe mm-hmm. and um i think rick kind of provides both aspects of that he's very well read and um but he's also I would say maybe a cultural anarchist as well. So he's kind mm-hmm. of like just sort of doesn't, he's very, I'm trying to think of like an appropriate way to say this. Not, I wouldn't say aggressive exactly, but um, very, um, doesn't really see the state as something to be reverent about. He's just very much like, yeah, they're just a bunch of thieves. Yeah. Like to me, he has the, he has a polish to him that Scott Horton at times lacks because, okay. you know, like you listen to Scott, like, you know, he, he, he has no reverence for the state and like takes no guff to it. Um, 
but sometimes Scott has that like skater like influence into him, which is great. But like Rick, a lot of times can have that polish to him where mm-hmm. he's telling you to like go eat dog crap or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. He'd... You kind of walk away going like, well, maybe I should. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you, you know, know what? there's actually some cool things too that are some interesting things that I listened to from Rick on that is I didn't realize how I knew he was kind of involved with Jessica Abbott's campaign to become a city council member. And mm-hmm. you and I have kind of mixed feelings about Jessica. Um, I think mostly just because of party stuff and mm-hmm. she's not nearly as, I guess, libertarian as we are, but, uh, her husband is a really great guy. They have, uh, I believe two cute children now. They um, do, yeah. And, uh, from what I understand, she's doing a, a, you know, at least better job than, um, a lot of the, like, you know, Republicans on the Virginia Beach city council. I mean, there's not much you can do when yeah, pretty much I, everybody's I against you, but she's very politically ambitious and has, I think a lot of the stuff that comes along with that. Mm-hmm. So, well, and that's the thing is like, I don't, I think Jessica learns from her mistakes better mm-hmm. than most politicians. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of those things. It's kind of like Ron Paul where I don't want to put somebody in that power, yeah. but I'm not that worried if it's her or Ron Paul. I think their instincts are so close to the best that you can have when elected yeah that you know like I, maybe they'll guide it to us off landing and an end of it you know what i mean sure. like, the, like i could see jessica like working herself out of a job right well i, I could know? probably see that too and, and one thing i will say about her and her husband um when i was in charge of the young libertarians and when i got burned real bad by the the ron paul libertarians that end up becoming romney supporters in 2012, mm-hmm. Jessica and Matt Cheatham were still there and supporting uh, Gary Johnson and helping me out with the campaign. They were one of the few people who were doing that. And they weren't even really involved with the Young Libertarians anymore at all. Yeah, they weren't. And uh, But they still were, they had the contacts with the Gary Johnson campaign. They kind of put me in, in contact with those people and mm-hmm. um, they provided me with the signs and the, diff- the literature for going and you know, knocking on doors and stuff. And I didn't do as much of that as I probably could have, but I did maintain those signs. And every time the you know Republicans or Democrats would come take down my Gary Johnson signs, I'd put them right back up. So. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that Rick was mentioning was um, the transmission place. So uh-huh. that place is his crisis transmission, and they fought the Virginia Beach city government from eminent domain for quite a while now. Um, oh, that's the one over off of Witch Duck. Yeah, off of Witch Duck. Okay. Um, yeah, right that, near the interchange. That's right, because you, you, well, I don't know if you took that way home, but when you and I lived in the same area in Virginia Beach, I would mm-hmm. drive past that every day on the way home from work. Yeah. So one of the things, like, so to get, you know, super local baseball, um, as that episode with Rick does, or with that, you know, the, what Rick was saying is, so that building that he was talking about, that's like a homeless shelter, mm-hmm. it's built as, like, twice as close to the road as Price's Transmission was. Hmm. Like, the, it's super, super close to the road, and it's kind of like, I don't know if the city did it as a way to show, like, Price's, like, they won, and they weren't going to try to eminent domain anymore, because there's no way they're tearing down this government building. Right. But, yeah, like, it's super sad, because there's that feed store, and like Price's transmission like took over the feed store, and like that guy had been there forever. Yeah, you know? well, that's they, what Rick was saying. He'd been there since it was Princess Anne County. Yeah, and there used to be like a really cool hardware store, and like like a hardware lumber store. Like this, it was like oh a, yeah, with the big with that whole big back area where all the mm-hmm. that was empty when when I moved over there. But I'm sure when you yeah. were a kid, it was open and there was people doing business there. Yeah, actually, I think it was open when you first moved over there. Oh, okay. But I don't think it was open much longer after that. And this is how long the city had been like. And, you know, that was, you know, you were at 
like moved over there eight to nine years ago. Yeah, it was. And well, like, I moved into the Betsy Ross house in 2010. Yeah, and like they just like tore down that area less than two and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, they like, started when I think when when I moved up to Norfolk. Yeah, they'd been trying to like eminent domain the Prices Transmission place for that long, and so I mean, and like it's just eminent domain is such a disgusting concept yeah that, like for the public good and like even then like the supreme court case like was super like the 2005 one because there's a fee article about it recently mm-hmm. oh, okay um, about this guy who you know had a building or has a building and i can't remember where where the no it's in mass yeah it's in massachusetts which has like some just wide open like no eminent domain like protection laws yeah like there's 44 states that do and six that don't mm-hmm. well i don't know how many of those are commonwealths because those aren't states right damn it <laughs> so um spoken like a true virginian <laughs> exactly so this guy has like you know the furniture business on the ground floor and it's like an eight-story building and it's like the tallest building in town or something like that and so he tried to redevelop it and he put a bunch of money into it but the person he was trying to redevelop it with it like the plans fell through and the guy he tried to redevelop it is the one the city gave the building to basically after like deciding how much the building is worth so they told you how much your property is worth Mm -hmm. and then give it to the guy who you were working with previously to redevelop it after this guy lost like a couple hundred thousand dollars right like trying to get these plans together to redevelop the building and then they're going to have a retail shop at the bottom of the building but the guy who's was owns the building has a furniture retail shop down Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. And they're just not going to let him have that space. So, like, they're fighting it in court, and hopefully he'll win. But, you know, it's one of those insane things. Yeah. Know? Well, that's always – I mean, even even back when we were all in the Young Libertarians groups, eminent domain is, was one of the number one issues we talked about because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a big deal for particularly Hampton Roads. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with just kind of the location near the water is – it's hard sometimes for uh, large development projects to get built, but as we know in like market discovery, is that that's how what prices are for. Prices adjust, and and if you can't get somebody to sell their property, then you're clearly not offering enough for the property. Correct, and and that's the thing. Like, so one of the things that you know you don't have as much familiarity with, and like even I don't have as much familiarity with as it, it does exist, mm-hmm. is in Virginia Beach there used to be what was called the Green Line. Oh, where, that's right. You told me about this. Yeah, the mayor, who was a Democrat for a very long time. Um, Orbendorf, who the Central Library is now named after, was paying property owners not to allow development below a certain point in the city. And once she left office, because she like got dementia, like she was like just suddenly gone, basically. And so once she left, the Green Line went away. But before that, you know, they had to like do all these tricky things to get like you know to expand the city in certain ways because they wouldn't expand below that point so it's like the government put its own weird market pressures on things right and so that was kind that, of the deal where they couldn't develop a lot of the farmland and they couldn't build over a certain height mm-hmm. well they still can't build over a certain height but that's not that's the the navy's radar oh okay yeah but you remember um like what so on independence Mm-hmm. From right up where my parents, like, so the ex- the last exit of the neighborhood you lived in, yeah, going toward where my parents live, mm-hmm. all the way back to the mall, there used to be houses there. Hmm. Okay. So, like, Independence used to have houses there, and they eminent domained all of those. And, oh, like, the last holdout was the last house, like, way up on that one exit. Yeah. Like, going toward my parents' house out of the top part of that neighborhood. 
mm-hmm. and like but that was one of those things is like you know the city was like oh we need to expand independence and then like you know you see those big drainage ditches and everything like that those like they the ha- it's like they didn't even i can't remember what the road looked like beforehand but mm. like you know how small those lots are yeah like way more land still there that's just not developed and how much money did the city blow and like traffic still sucks up that way right <laughs> yeah know? yeah that seems uh, to be always is that they just they just never solve it but kind of yeah. going going back to rick one of the beer that he recommended for us was the samuel adams Oct- uh, not Oktoberfest, the winter lager mm-hmm. um you and i have a lot of fond memories of winter lager that was one of our favorites early on yes. in our beer ventures have you tried this year's winter lager i have not no because so since i've been doing intermittent fasting mm. Like, I stopped consuming any caloric intake after 7, except for on show nights. Okay. Because we record it at 8 and later. That makes sense, yeah. So, I don't buy a lot of beer anymore because I don't like drinking during the day because I don't feel good doing it. Right. And, like, with beer, like, I always get tricked into having, by my own mentality, into having, like, 3 or Mm 4. And then, you know, it's like you put on, like, what, an extra 1,000 calories almost with that. That's true. And it's just like, eh, this isn't worth it. But I've been meaning to get some, especially, you know, now listening to Rick, I want to give it a shot. Because before I moved back to Virginia Beach and before I started attending the Young Libertarian meetings, the girl I had been dating at the time, she and I, like, had a big thing for that beer. Yeah. And we used to call it snow beer or snow lager because, like, I couldn't ever remember what it was. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was good. We all liked it, I think. And, um... Uh, we would anytime that well anytime there was I remember there was one year I can't remember if it was the Oktoberfest or the Winter Lager but they used uh, those soap pops mm. and it was just the one year and it was just like oh we were so disappointed but then like yeah. they went back to being normal the year after yeah that. I think it was the I think it was may have been Oktoberfest mm. and then Winter Lager they like somehow spoiled a bunch of it so like it was a really limited release mm. that could be that could be. So you got any more um, memories you want to give real quick for Rick before we close this episode out? Oh, let's see. I'm trying to think of my my favorite Rick Caldwell story. And and this is one of those, like, shocking things to me because there were so many times where stuff would happen with Rick that I just was like, I'll never forget that. (laughs) And then, like, some of the stories you guys told them like that didn't happen no it did yeah that's right yeah well it was it was it was a ghost of christmas past yeah it was it was it's definitely the ghost of christmas past because that was like that was a very formative period of time for me and i think for you as as well Mm -hmm. and um just kind of the more i think about it the more we rick and i were talking it just kind of not only for the anarchy aspect of it but rick has just been a a great influence on my life in general and i'm very happy to have been able to speak to him again and happy to have been able to share that episode with you yeah and that's what i will say is you know rick if you're listening to this you know we as we you discussed a little bit with jacob in that episode you've been a big influence on us and you know obviously we wish you all the best in the the coming year and uh, the remainder of the year and all the years to come so thanks for everything man All right, and that is that for this show, and we will see you on the Ghost of Christmas present tomorrow.